Duke fans, hello and welcome to episode number 231 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. I know it's been a couple days, but we are back. This podcast here has some national news to cover and also some news that is pertinent to Duke athletics. So we're going to get into all of that. Before we do that, Donald Wine here, the host for this episode. I am coming to you, as always, or most of the time, from my home in D.C. My two friends are with me. First, Jason Evans in Atlanta. Jason, hello. Hey, I want to talk about some basketball. Let's get to some basketball news, okay? We do have some basketball news this week. And and in Boston, we have Sam Klein. Hello, Sam. Yeah, I feel like the the stuff we're going to cover is all things that people may have heard about the last few days, and we just haven't gotten to it yet. But we kind of let we let all the basketball things pile up, and now we're now we're letting it all out. Yeah, and it's weird. Is that an apology? I think we're apologizing. I think it's an apology. It. It's, it's a slight <laughs> apology. You know, we uh, hey, look I'll, I'll try we, to do a lot. <laughs> we did a full football. We did a full football episode the other day. So so here's basketball news. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I'll say this. The fact that we waited a couple of days, we had lots of time to come up with some really interesting angles on this stuff. Right. Sometimes Maybe. it's better to wait and be thoughtful than it is to just react. Some, you know, Everyone in the news reacts. Sometimes we want to be thoughtful with ours. And the first thing I want to get your thoughts on is the people's champion, Nolan Smith. It was reported late last week that Penny Hardaway, the coach of the Memphis Tigers, had coveted Nolan Smith for one of his assistant coaching jobs. Nolan Smith, who is currently not an assistant coach with Duke, he is the director of basketball operations and, more importantly, a friend of the podcast. Uh, He went to Memphis to interview for this position, but he eventually declined the job to remain at Duke. Now, a lot of people are taking that to mean that Smith will likely move into one of the assistant coaching spots in the near future, not in the say like the season or next season, but at a certain at some point in the near future, prompting him to stay in Durham. So, Sam, I want to go to you first. Tell us what you think of this news and what it means that Nolan Smith is turning down assistant coaching positions now to remain in Durham. So we don't know for sure that he actually turned down an offer. We know that he interviewed with Penny Hardaway. All the reports said that he was that he was in the process. So Right there is interesting item number one, which is Nolan Smith is interested in being a full-time assistant on on a basketball team. I think one of the interesting things about his career on the Duke bench so far is that he hasn't been a formal assistant coach yet. He's been the director of basketball operations. He's been a special assistant, but hasn't actually been an on-court assistant. So he's actually limited in the ways in which he can interact with the players on the team as a not actual assistant coach. And something that I know I've thought about this, and and I'm not sure how much we've actually talked about it on the show, but Nolan's taken a a slightly different route in his coaching career than than a lot of the other guys who have come before him on the Duke bench, who have all, you know, for many years now, have all been former Duke players. But no one's kind of taken these these sort of alternative roles the way that Nolan has. So I kind of have have thought for a couple of years that maybe Nolan doesn't actually want to be a head coach. Maybe he wants to be an athletic director. Maybe he wants some other role in basketball or or in Durham or in the community that isn't directly a basketball coach. This tells me, yep, he is he's going for that. That is his goal, which which is totally fine and and very cool for him. The Memphis opportunity wasn't exactly what he was looking for right here. So let's talk about that. And, and I know that Jason wants to get into kind of a, a little bit of a predictive metric on when assistant coaches for Duke move on to take head coaching jobs. Because by the way, Duke assistant coaches do not leave to become assistant coaches elsewhere. Being a Duke assistant coach is a big deal. And and as we said, it's been many, many years since Duke had a non-alum 
as an actual assistant coach. So it, it's weird for them to leave an assistant coaching job in Durham to be an assistant somewhere else. If, if they're not going to be head coaches, they are they are staying right where they are. So we we do kind of see here that that this job isn't exactly it's not good enough for Nolan in some way. Memphis is is about as as professional as as you can get in terms of in terms of basketball assistant jobs. It's obviously they're they're in a big city that has a ton of talent. They're coached by Penny Hardaway, who was an NBA All Star. So it comes with a ton of of cachet. Obviously, Hardaway has been in a little bit of hot water for for some recruiting scandals. But I think generally in basketball circles, people people like him. And so it would be it'd be a very cool opportunity for Nolan to work with another NBA guy who's kind of outside the family. But I think the most interesting part of all of this is the Duke coaching tree and the way that former players have cycled in and out of, of the Duke program to get their opportunities, not just to coach with Coach K, but to get their own programs. And guys have, you know, Johnny Dawkins left Duke to go to Stanford. Steve Wojciechowski left to, to go to Marquette. Chris Collins for Northwestern. They, they've gone to, to big-time schools. And, and there's a number of guys on the Duke bench now who might be angling for those promotions to head coaching roles to make room for Nolan Smith. So, Jason, I, I know that you took a look at that. What did you find about Duke assistants who have moved on to, to head coaching roles? And what do you think that means for Nolan on the Duke bench? So I went back, all the way back to the days of, of Johnny Dawkins and Tommy Amaker being assistant coaches at Duke, you know, which is really, that's the beginning of the, the Coach K coaching tree being almost exclusively populated by former players, which is, you know, as you mentioned, that, that's where we are today. And that's what it looks like it's going to continue for, for the immediate future. So, so I'm looking at whether or not there's going to be an opening very soon for, for Nolan Smith to move into. And the interesting thing I, I noticed is, with the exception of Quinn Snyder, Quinn Snyder was six years at Duke, six years as an assistant before he got the job at Missouri. And Quinn has Quinn Quinn wandered through the coaching wilderness for a little while. He coached overseas for a long time um, and is now one of the best coaches in the NBA. So, you know, unbelievably successful. You can you can make a pretty good argument that Quinn Snyder is the most successful of Coach K's coaching tree at this point. But bottom line is he was six years as an assistant to become a head coach. Other than that, these guys tend to take you know, a decade, a decade plus as an assistant before they move on. Tommy Amaker was nine years and then he moved on. He remember he got the Seton Hall job. Johnny Dawkins was 10 years before he got the Stanford job. Chris Collins, 13 years before going to Northwestern. Wojo was 15 years as an assistant, 15 years before he got the job at Marquette. Jeff Capel, slightly different situation. He was seven years as an assistant at Duke, but but he'd been at Virginia Commonwealth and at Oklahoma. So that's sort of different. But the bottom line is, it looks like you got to be at least 10 years in this gig before you've been seasoned enough, before you're really time to be a head coach, other than Quinn Snyder. That, you know, we just don't see it before then. So the question then becomes, look at the current Duke assistant coaches and who is next in line. Well, Nate James, who's an associate head coach, is currently in his 11th year as an assistant coach you know, associate head coach here at Duke. Nate's 11 years in this gig. It's getting to be time where Nate could be moving on. But a lot of people think John Shire is the one who's sort of next up because Shire is the one who does a lot of the interviews. And, and you know, when Coach K can't do an interview, it's Shire who does it. It sort of feels like Shire and Nate James are both associate head coaches, but it feels like Shire might be a little bit ahead in terms of 
I don't, I don't want to call it responsibilities, but you know, just in terms of perception, Shire's only been an assistant for six years now. He's only 33 years old. Nate James is 43. He's 10 years older than that. So I know a lot of people out there are speculating Nolan is going to be made an assistant when Shire gets a head coaching job. I kind of feel like Nate James may be next in line. And then the other guy who's an assistant is Chris Carowell. He had four years as an assistant at Marquette for Wojo. He's now two years as an assistant at Duke. So he's only got six years of assistant coaching. I, I think Sewell needs a little more seasoning before it's his time. But anyway, I, I just wanted to point out, I feel like Nate James may be more ready than John Shire, even though Shire's the guy who's sort of getting a lot of the buzz. And man, again, Shire, 33 years old. He is really young for people who think he's the one who's going to be moving on. I don't know how many big time programs. And, and by the way, we've named the programs. Duke assistants tend to leave for big time programs. I don't know how many big time programs are going to go. Yeah, that 33 year old guy. Uh, that's the one I want. I, I think Nate James is probably the next one up. And I think it probably comes in the next couple of years. And that's where Nolan fits back in uh, and gets his assistant coaching job at Duke. One thing about that, Jason, is that I feel like John Shire and, and maybe it's just recency bias, but I feel like John Shire has gotten a lot more publicity for both his recruiting and on-court coaching acumen than previous Duke assistant coaches got, especially as it pertained to Collins and Wojo, who, to me, it felt like stuck around long enough to get exactly the right jobs for them. Steve Wojciechowski's from Baltimore, but ended up at a school in Milwaukee. I think at, at, like, at the kind of school that you would expect Wojo to go to, smaller private school, Catholic school, seems like a little bit more uh, of his bag. You know, Coach Collins is is from Chicago and ended up at, at Northwestern, so a, a job that seems almost tailor-made for him. Those guys, I think, stuck around a little longer than, than I thought they needed to, to, to get the seasoning necessary. Shire, I feel like, gets so much publicity, especially on on the recruiting front, for being for being one of the top assistants in the game. So it actually wouldn't surprise me if a school, even outside of, of Shire's natural comfort zone, would would reach for him. I, I think, especially a school that, that's trying to go for a for a home run long term hire. You know, if, if they're thinking, all right, we got to find the next guy who's going to be a thirty year head coach. Uh, I, why not John Shire? He's gotten tons of accolades during this most recent run of Duke teams that, while they've maybe underperformed a little bit in the tournament, have gotten all the best recruits and been been in it every year. So I, I actually could see John Shire leaving earlier than than some of his predecessors. And I think that's why Nolan Smith is getting the buzz now as well, even as it with no assistant coach experience. Listen, when we talk about, you know, you, you talk about all these guys, you know, John Shire has been one of the heavy recruiters, you know, Nate James has been around seemingly forever. Chris Carrawell has been back with the program for a couple seasons, but a lot of the recruits, a lot of the players talk about their special relationship that they do have with Nolan Smith. And I think when it comes to him being an assistant, I think teams are going to start coveting him because he clearly has the mind to get to know these players and get the best out of what they can do. And I think that will translate well to recruiting. I think whenever he gets the reins to be able to go out in the road and be an assistant coach or an associate head coach and recruit, he is going to be a rock star at that. And I think Penny sees that now. And I also think Coach K sees that, which is why he was able to make, you know, make it so that Nolan Smith stays in Durham at least for a couple more years to keep him in the program. But I think when it comes to Nolan Smith, I think he is going to be one of the next coveted guys not just at Memphis, but across the country, because people look at how he gets to know these players and, and in his role, 
And I think that is something that people think is going to translate well to recruiting that they're going to need to get their team over the hump. But by the way, Sam, your point about recruiting, it is worth noting that the lead assistant at Duke, the guy who handled the recruiting for both AJ Griffin and Paolo Banchero, um, the two studs who are on their way to Duke next year, the guy, the, the assistant who was in charge of those two recruiting efforts was John Shire in both cases. So maybe, maybe my projection is off. John Shire certainly has a reputation as a heck of a recruiter and a lot of schools. That's what they, that's what they want. And you know what? They have coach K as a reference. They have the best reference in the world. I need that reference. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> so guys, we're going to shift from college basketball to the NBA. And we want to talk about our boy, Jason Tatum, because Jason Tatum has led the Boston Celtics to the Eastern Conference Finals. It was a great game seven against the Toronto Raptors the other night. He did something that only one other player has ever done. He became the second youngest player in NBA postseason history to record 25 points, 10 rebounds, and five assists in a game seven. The only other player to do that at a younger age, only a guy by the name of Kobe Bryant. He also went off for his 20th 20-point playoff game and that is fourth most in the NBA before turning the age of 23. He ties with Kevin Durant, the only other people who did it before turning 23, also Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, and Derrick Rose. So, Jason, I want to start with you because Jason Tatum, we have talked about his rise to superstardom over the last couple of months, but it really has hit a stride in the playoffs to the point where people aren't talking about him as a guy that is reaching for superstardom. I mean, they're talking about him because he's already there. They're talking about him as one of the top 10 players in the NBA. Do you think that's correct from what you're seeing? Because for what he's been doing so far in this playoffs, it has been a masterful performance, and he's really been a catalyst for Boston being so great in these playoffs. I absolutely think he is one of the top 10 players in the NBA right now. I think that when the, when the all-NBA first, second, third team is announced – not only will Jason Tatum's name be one of the 15 guys named there, I think he'll be on the All-NBA second team, which will make him one of the 10 best players in the league. And he deserves it. There's absolutely no question about that. I have heard a number of people in the past couple of days, they are saying that Jason Tatum is the next Kawhi Leonard because this guy is great on defense. A, and, and, and by the way, he was not a very good defender at Duke. <laughs> He's learned it since he went to the NBA, but this is a really good defensive player who is... He has this really long stride. He's able to get to the bucket in, in way, you know, teams just can't stop him. And, and he is just special, special on offense. I want to give people his playoff stats. This is what he's done thus far in the playoffs. 25.3 points per game, 10.1 rebounds per game. Let's repeat that. That's, that's He's averaging a double-double. 25 points per game, 10 rebounds per game, 4.3 assists per game, which is second on the team. 1.2 blocks per game, second on the team. He's blocking shots. He's, he's made the most three-pointers of anybody on the Boston Celtics. He's hitting 42% of his threes. And he's averaging seven and a half free throws per game. He's getting to the line. Teams cannot stop him. And so they're fouling him. And he gets to the line. He makes his free throws. This Toronto series was a matchup of the two best young power forwards in the Eastern Conference. It was Pascal Siakam, who's 26, and Jason Tatum, who's 22. But those, these two guys are both the best players on their teams. And the difference in this series, the single reason that Boston advanced and Toronto is going home, is that Jason Tatum averaged 10 more points per game than Siakam did, three more rebounds per game than Siakam did, and 
Jason Tatum's defense was part of the reason why Pascal Siakam hit, wait for it, 9% of his three-pointers. Siakam was four of 32 on three-pointers. That was Jason Tatum's defense. And, uh, you know, he, he is clearly, Tatum has clearly become the best player on the team that at this moment appears to be the favorite to come out of the East and represent the East in the NBA Finals. Uh, it, it is exciting to watch. And I think at age 22, we are seeing a guy in Jason Tatum who is going to be a perennial, not just all-star, perennial all-NBA player. And I think it's just a matter of a few years, get a little bit older, a little bit stronger, a little bit wiser, a little bit better. And a few guys age out. And Jason Tatum's going to be the next Kawhi Leonard in this league. He's going to be a top five player in the NBA. I want to just echo all those accolades for his performance against Toronto. The Raptors were NBA champs last year. They obviously lost Leonard at the end of the season where, you know, he he left to, to go play for the Clippers. But Toronto was was extremely potent this year. They were one of the very best teams in the Eastern Conference. They, you know, they, they and were a great the defensive seed. Team. And great a great defensive, defensive team. Yeah. And 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 played their own style. So you sort of had to adjust to Toronto when you played them. And Boston was able to do that. I think I think the, the Celtics are one of the most versatile teams in the NBA. And Tatum is is sort of the the, the face of that uh, looking ahead at the heat series, which I'm really excited for because not only are we reviving a little bit of a, a mini rivalry that's been back and forth the last few years, especially when it was LeBron James in, in Miami and all the, the big three still in Boston, but we got a new cast of characters, but some of the same guys and, and the same uniforms. And, and by the way, the heat looked awesome. I mean, they they put on probably the most impressive performance hey, of the most hey, recent Sam, round by, of the playoffs. Sam, by the way, the best part about this matchup is Pat Riley and Danny Ainge. Oh yeah, hate each other. I mean, hate they each really other. hate each other. Like, do they hate each other time. or do they hate each other? <laughs> really like, hate each other. go if if you haven't if you haven't seen any of this stuff, go Google it. Go go Google the the Danny Ainge Pat Riley stuff because they are they are like two of the pettiest dudes in basketball. And they completely have it out for each other. They're, so it's going to be no holds barred. I, I also saw that Gordon Hayward is, it sounds like Gordon Hayward's going to be back for the Celtics in this series. And so it is, yeah. it is, it is all hands on deck for, for these teams to, uh, to get to the finals. And, and of course we at Duke basketball report have to be rooting for the Celtics because the heat traded away justice Winslow. They've got, they've got no Duke players left on the team. The Celtics have, have, have Jason Tatum. So we're all in on that. And yeah, I'm, I'm totally blown away by his performance and can't wait to see him in the Eastern conference finals. And, and, and can I say, as long as we mentioned Danny Ainge, I, I fervently believe that when Danny Ainge passes from this earth and they are making a headstone for his funeral, that his headstone needs to have these words on it. It needs to say he traded Markel Fultz, for Jason Tatum and a first round draft pick. That's one of the greatest trades in NBA history. I mean, it's like not even close. The fact that Danny Ainge fooled the 76ers into taking Markel Fultz and giving him Jason Tatum and a number one draft pick. He, he is the greatest GM <laughs> around right now because of that trade. Honestly, I'm looking forward to, I, I've, I've watched, as I've told you guys before, I've watched every single game of these NBA playoffs as, you know, just, just to, overcome you know the stuff that i've had to go through over the last month the basketball has been a release for me and my family we watch it all the time it's not like it's something that we weren't watching before but these playoffs with a with just everything that's going on with covid and other stuff the fact that we can watch basketball and you know in september mid-september is just you know 
fascinating to me and I love every second of it. So, but when it comes to Jason Tatum, I, I really want to see in this upcoming series, if the battle between him and Jimmy Butler, Jimmy Buckets, if that's going to be something that rivals what we saw in the first round between Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray, them trading baskets back and forth, because I think it has the capability to match that. Uh, They both have a tendency to just go off, and they both have the tendency to just not give a single F about anyone else on the floor and just take the ball and do their thing. And I think that that dynamic is between the two is so fascinating, and they match up well. And I think that's why this series is going to be really great. The first time ever that we have had a Eastern Conference Finals that does not have a one or a two seed in it. It's a three versus five. And I think that is what makes this even more fascinating because those two teams have been the clear best teams in the East. Hey, I got a question for you guys. Uh, The playoffs have been incredible. I've watched the playoffs for many, many, many years. This, I think, has been the best, most exciting, most interesting playoffs we've had yet. Here's my question. Should the NBA play on a neutral floor in the playoffs forever now? Because I think this neutral floor thing is working. The fact that we're no home games is working great. It's just, it's the best team winning and home court has nothing to do with it. Should we do this from now on? I'm not saying we have to be in a bubble, but neutral court games with no fans <laughs> for the so NBA honestly, playoffs going forward. What, what do you think? I do think yes, but I don't think the entire playoffs. And I'm not saying that this hasn't been fascinating for the whole playoffs, but I do like the the ability of saying, hey, if I'm a one seed or a two seed and I've played 82 games like everybody else and I've demonstrated that I was the best team over that 82 games, I deserve to have at least one home game in front of my fans. But other than that, I think, you know, if you get to a point where like, hey, get out of the first round, then the the rest of the playoffs is at a neutral site somewhere and they pick the site ahead of time so that fans can come, you know, when, when this COVID thing is over and fans can come back and just kind of do it like they do in the NCAA tournament. I think that would be just masterful. I don't know about the whole no fans part. I think, you know, I, I love going to I, sporting I, events. I realized I said that and I went, that, that doesn't make any yeah, sense. <laughs> I love going to sport events too much to not ever go back to one. Uh, but I, I think when it comes to the neutral site thing, I think it's just a fascinating dynamic that, like you said, the best team, plays on that court there's no there's no travel thing you have to deal with so there's no rest involved when it comes to that just getting on planes and stuff so we've seen some great basketball uh over these last you know a few weeks so i think that angle yeah give me give me the neutral site at least for uh you know a couple of rounds maybe the finals the conference finals and the finals well you've all read bill simmons's proposal that he that he likes to talk about over and over about the entertaining as hell tournament, like a play in tournament, basically for the, uh, for the real playoffs. I, I don't remember the exact details of it, but it's basically saying that you take all the teams that are kind of in that, like in, in the bubble position, like the teams that would be like six through 10 or so and make them play a quick NCAA tournament style elimination tournament before the actual playoffs begin. You could totally do that on a neutral floor. I, I think what the, the bubble is exposing is, is who the, who the who the NBA players are who really just want to play basketball? Those guys are the ones that are thriving. Like Jimmy Butler, we, we were just talking about Jimmy Butler playing on the Heat. Jimmy Butler is a dude that only cares about kicking other guys' ass. In basketball. Does not care <laughs> about is, anybody. God, is he and, fun to watch? You know, and, and and we didn't we didn't get to see nearly enough of Dame Lillard because you know he got bounced in the first round. Lillard's another one of these guys where. You you put him on a basketball court, he wants to kick ass. That that is that is what Jimmy Butler is wild wired for, and we are seeing that in the bubble. I, I think that that's the coolest part of it is that there are no distractions. 
save for you know a couple guys who were who were wandering off and getting kicked out or whatever. Uh, there was that that story about Daniel, Daniel House. Daniel House. Oh, he had God. he had a lady yeah, to he, his room. What a he, what a fool. Ooh, but, boy. <laughs> but but if you're if you're if you're in the NBA because you want a ball, man, the the, the bubble is the place to do it. Yeah. So one final thing on, on on Jimmy Butler, you were talking about he. When I say he, this man does not care about a single thing. There's a there's a great article, a couple articles. I want to say they're in uh, ESPN the magazine a few months back about how he literally just like will just wake up every day at three a.m. and get all do a whole practice in by himself before like six a.m. and then work out and then go back to the court. And when the shoot around happens, usually in the early, you know, mid morning, mid to late morning, he's already done like two full practices worth of work. And everyone's like, and he's still just like, yo, I just want to, I just want to, you know, play pickup for like six hours. And on the court, it was during game four at the end of game four, where they were just, I'm sorry, game three, they were just annihilating uh, the Bucks. He's just staring off into space and just talking to anyone who would listen. He's just like, we got some balls in this team. I didn't told y'all y'all better say in the booth y'all better say, but you couldn't hear, you could just hear a mouth in it. And you could tell that he's just like, I don't even care if anyone's listening to me. I'm telling you what is going on here. We have some ballers on this team. All we're here to do is play ball. Everyone else might be here to do other stuff, but this is why this next series is going to be so fantastic because you got two teams who have a bunch of those type of guys on the team that are just there to play ball and it's going to be a great, great series to watch. By the way, Kawhi Leonard, another one of those psychopaths. Absolutely, love just the just the total total obsession uh, that we get to we get to see these guys engage in when they're when they're free of all the other distractions. Yeah. So we want to get to a massive proposal that the ACC coaches have for the NCAA tournament, and I think we want to take a look at the financial books for Duke Athletics. But first, we are going to take this quick commercial break. So guys, we are back. And I wanted, as I mentioned, I wanted to discuss a a proposal that the ACC basketball coaches issued last week for this year's NCAA tournament. We talked a little bit about Coach K's comments from a couple of weeks back about how he wished to have an expanded tournament because of COVID and how and because of how weird this year is going to be. Well, the ACC has proposed that the 2021 NCAA tournament consists of all the eligible teams in Division I basketball. That's right. 346 teams that would be eligible for this year's tournament, the ACC says, let them all in. There, are, uh, There's 357 teams in Division I basketball. Once you take out Oklahoma State, who was banned for infractions, there's three academically ineligible teams, and then there's seven teams that are designated as reclassifiers, so they're not eligible for this year's tournament. After you take those out, the ACC is saying, throw everybody into a pot and let's dance. So, Jason, I will begin with you. This is a massive proposal. Do you think, one, that it has a legitimate chance of becoming reality? And two, do you think if it happens that it would devalue the regular season? So question one, no. I think this is not going to happen. I don't think it makes any sense at all. I will get to why I think the ACC did this, but but I think you know, why the ACC wants this, but I think it's not going to happen. And as for your second question, whether we devalue the regular season, yes. 
I think it would completely devalue the regular season. I mean, sure, you'd still get the advantage of of being a higher seed based on your regular season performance, but but a higher seed in a tournament that features every single team, it just doesn't feel to me like it's really worth it. It it, it doesn't make the regular season that valuable. But I want to get back to what I was saying a moment ago. I think this proposal reveals something about what the ACC is thinking for this upcoming season. And, and here is what I believe it means. I think that the ACC is planning and expecting to build a bubble for ACC teams only, and that they are expecting that they are just going to play amongst themselves. You know, I guess maybe, you know, maybe we will try to have non-conference games, but I think the ACC is expecting and perhaps even planning to just play an ACC schedule. And as a result of that, I mean, it, look, think about it this way. They could play a 28-game schedule, just play a full round, round robin of all the teams. There are 15 teams in the league. You play everybody twice, that's 28 games. That's a, that's a pretty good regular season right there. You play a full round robin schedule in the ACC. And the reason the ACC is proposing this is because they're thinking, look, there's going to be no way to compare us to any other conference. If we only play ourselves, then you have no idea whether any ACC team is, is, you know, is really good or, or not. So they're saying, let everybody in because we think it's going to be impossible to judge conferences against each other and teams against each other. And it may be that the 10th place team, the 12th place team in the ACC is really good. We don't know that. We won't know that because we've done nothing but play each other. And so I think this is revealing um, in terms of what the ACC is preparing for. I think they're preparing for a situation where the only fair tournament is a tournament that's very, very, very inclusive because there's not going to be a way to judge te uh, teams from different conferences against each other. I think if you want to look at this really cynically, the ACC is just trying to, I think they're trying to anchor the powers that be around putting as many teams in the tournament as possible. And even if, if they only end up letting in uh, 128 teams or, or something around there, so you might still have play-in games, that basically says the whole ACC is making the NCAA tournament. And if the NCAA tournament is making the same amount on a per game basis from the TV revenues and, and all that kind of other stuff, then that's more money in the pockets of the ACC. That's more money for all the schools to, you know, pay back. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about the recent news out of, out of Duke athletics about the state of their, the budget in, in the athletic department, but bigger NCAA tournament equals more payouts equals more more money for for those schools to recoup the losses that have come from from these last few months under the pandemic. So I think that's the cynical way of looking at it. I think also the NC, the ACC, like you were saying, Jason, is realizing that they're they're able to to bubble up. They are they have the resources to do that. You know, at least in the short term, and they're basically saying, look, all of our teams are ready to play. You want to put us on TV wherever you want us to to be to, to put us on TV. We'll, we'll, we'll do it. We're ready to go. So I, I don't think it's actually feasible that there are so many schools that are probably just going to not end up playing this year. But yeah, I, I think we're, we're probably headed for an expanded tournament, even if it's, even if it's just a, a one-year thing. So on the bubble thing, I want to push back slightly because when it comes to that, I don't think that it's just going to be the ACC. Here's why I say that's not going to happen because of those coffers that you're talking about. They're trying to, you know, I think there's still money to be had in things like the uh, champions classic and also the pre the, the early season tournaments. They've already discussed about the fact we were supposed to be playing in the battle for Atlantis this year in the Bahamas. That is most likely not going to be held in the Bahamas. They're talking about putting that 
in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, but they're still planning on having it at this point. And I think that's because there's still TV money to be made from those preseason tournaments as well. The Champions Classic was created for TV. It wasn't created because we you know, wanted to really play Kentucky and Michigan State and, and, and Kansas. It's because ESPN said, yo, if we get these four Blue Bloods and put them uh, playing each other on TV to open up the college basketball season, people are going to watch. And that's TV money, too. So I think those things are going to happen. There may not be those, you know, random one off kind of, you know, big games like when, you know, maybe the Big Ten ACC challenge. I think that might also be something that they can work on. Uh, but the way but that would require the ACC and the Big Ten to talk to each other. And that clearly isn't happening in football. So why would I expect that to happen in basketball? But I do think that it will lead to an eventual expansion of the ACC season uh, beyond the 20 games that we already have, because like you said, it's easier to control within your own conference. And especially with basketball, it'd be easy to just have a bunch of, you know, you know, three or four bubbles uh, spread throughout the conference so that teams can play each other and then for be there for a couple of weeks and then move on to the next one. So I think it's going to be interesting, but I do think that this tactic is one that is just like saying, Hey, you're thinking small. Let's think big. You may not have to think as big as we, the ACC, are thinking and putting every team in there, but that should get everybody to the table. And hopefully they come to resolution where something in the middle, like a 128 or even, you know, 150 or something to give all of these teams a realistic and, and, and fair chance at being in this NCAA tournament, I think it's something that they're going to consider. And I think that's what this proposal leads to. I, I, I do want to point out one thing. A lot of people like to say, and it's not wrong, more games is more TV money. And, and that's absolutely accurate. When you come to the NCAA tournament, if, they, if it's an expanded tournament and there are extra games, you're going to get extra money. But if it's an extra game, you know, by adding a game between the number 240th team playing the 320th team for the right to face the 80th best team, there's not a lot of money in that game. There's money in power conference teams and in really good teams playing other really good teams. There's not a lot of money in small-time teams playing each other in play-in games and the such like that, or even small-time teams playing big-time teams and getting slaughtered. So I think there's a – Donald, I think you're absolutely right. I think they're going to come to some kind of happy medium – between 346 and 64. I think 128 probably is where we're going to end up. Yeah, 128 seems like the nice round number where, again, it does everything that we talked about. It gives everyone a logistic, a, a realistic shot at making the tournament, and it doesn't allow for people to be slighted because of how weird that this schedule for college basketball seems like it's shaping up to be. Okay, guys, and we want to wrap up with a discussion on Duke Athletics and their finances. The Iron Dukes, obviously everyone knows about the Iron Dukes. A lot of you out there, Iron Dukes. The Iron Dukes some got an email the other day about the, shall I say, the scarcity of, of or the fluidity, I would say, of finances that Duke is facing this year. And just really the consequences of trying to put on athletics in the middle of a pandemic. And as you could expect, there are some budget holes that need to be filled. And really we've talked about this in the past with other schools cutting sports or drastically reduce the number of scholarships in certain sports. That's not where we're at at Duke, thankfully. Uh, but what this email did kind of allude to is that they need to make up some ground in the, in their financial department and they need to make it up now 
because the way that things are going, the way that things are costing with regards to testing, and we've, we've talked, we've marveled in the past about how Duke has been very, very good at uh, the testing and making sure that the student athletes and the students at large remain safe. But that costs money. And they're doing testing every day for football. They're doing testing uh, every day for some other sports that are that are uh, that are continuing in the fall. And for others, they're doing testing at least once a week. Now, since they have all this testing, they have less revenue coming in because guys uh, are playing in front of empty stadiums. And there's still the re- other expenses that go into operating these teams. They have a, a budget shortfall right now of at least twenty million dollars. So. I want to start with you, Sam. Give me your sense of what all of this means. I, I know I just kind of breezed through some of the, the details, but what do we think this means for Duke? Are we in a situation where this is kind of saying, hey, we need you guys to step up or we're going to have to start cutting things? Or is this something where they're just kind of saying, hey, let's try and make it so that we can continue to give students at least, you know, keep the keep the margins close, knowing that in a COVID world, this is not going to be perfect. Yeah, Donald, th- there was a lot of information in there, and I, and I wanted to, to walk back through it. So basically, what we know is that the athletic department was projecting something like 120 million budget for this year. We can sort of assume, uh, especially from from the details of that email, that the Duke Athletic Department is is basically run as a nonprofit. Their revenues are basically just going to equal their costs every year. We we don't know exactly how they how they you know run the accounting in there, but but that seems like probably a fair estimate. There are some athletic departments that that recognize a, a, a sort of profit every year. Duke apparently is is not one of them. We we've talked before about how we probably expect that the athletic department overall is able to to make money. But regardless, the so the budget shortfall is something like twenty million dollars, which tells us that they've lost out on twenty million in revenue. Where did they where did they miss out? on that from let's think about this first of all the ncaa tournament wasn't played in the spring and the ncaa tournament is a huge driver for revenue as is the acc tournament you've got television rights you've got gate receipts that that get distributed among the conferences so that part's out and then looking forward duke knows as you said donald that there won't be butts in the seats at at football games this year so they're still getting tv money but they're missing out on attendance and they're probably projecting similar for basketball. So they're missing out on all that ticket revenue. And then we talked about how this was an announcement to the Iron Dukes. Well, if you know, one of the big benefits of being an Iron Duke, of, of donating lots of money to Duke Athletics, is that you get basketball tickets uh, and you get access to basketball tickets and more basketball tickets. So what happens this year if you are somebody who is really devoted to Duke basketball, as our listeners are, and are thinking like, you know, maybe this is the year that I that I shell out the thousands that I need to be an Iron Duke level high enough that that I can qualify for basketball tickets. Well, if I'm not getting basketball tickets, then why am I spending thousands of dollars to donate to the university? So all of that is kind of going on in their heads here. And the athletics department is basically saying, look, this is where we know we're losing out this year. We're trying not to cut staff entirely we're trying not to cut athletes we're trying not to cut sports so they basically announced this across the board 15 percent cut hopefully that means that everybody in the athletic department can actually keep their jobs you know there's a lot of people that that work for duke athletics it's not just the high-paid coaches it's not just coach k and coach cutcliffe and john shire and nolan smith there, there are a lot of people that work in the athletic department that don't make the 
the hundreds of thousands or the millions of dollars that those guys are making. So you really hope that Duke is able to to keep everybody in place because we all expect that this thing is going to end, whether it's early next year, sometime the following year, whatever. Things presumably are going to return to normal, and Duke wants to be able to kick back into gear whenever that happens. So it, it's it, it's a surprising amount of transparency that that Duke would would put this out to the public, even if it's just to the Iron Dukes, but. I think it's good that they're that they're being upfront about it, and they're letting us know that everyone's suffering from this. This is how this is how we're seeing it, and this is how you kind of know what our plan is going forward. Yeah, and really, you talked about that, but also for me, there's stuff that wasn't reflected in that email that doesn't necessarily pertain to Duke, but it, it's a residual effect. I mean, just think for football games, it's not just people who are on Duke's campus that attend football games. People come from all over the place. I mean, I live in DC and had season tickets for football for a long time. I would drive down four hours to go watch football and drive four hours back, or I'd stay the night at one of the hotels in the area, Waduke or even a hotel off campus. You have people coming into town. They're spending money. They're buying merchandise. They're buying food at the student center. They're, they're walking around campus. They're getting excited about being back and they decide to donate all of these residual things are going to hurt and and really like all those restaurants that are lining the ring around campus uh, are I'm sure are just taking a beating right now because there's no football fans. And as of right now, we can expect that there's not going to be any fans for basketball. And, and that is something that uh, is resonating all across the country. I think, I mean, a lot of these schools are in small towns where literally the town triples in size on a weekend for football uh, or or even for basketball, because people come in, they spend money, they stay at their hotels, and then they get out. So I think when it comes to uh, the budget, you know, I, I, I don't want to say I'm glad that Duke is only facing a $20 million deficit, but it, it feels like they at least have a plan uh, to attack it. And this is the first step of that plan. So Jason, I want to go to you based on that, because when we talk about this budget, they laid out some scenarios that they kind of envisioned and kind of said, okay, if we have scenario A, this is what that windfall is going to be. This is what that deficit is going to be. And this is what we need to do to make it up. Why don't you talk about what you saw in those different scenarios and what we're kind of leaning towards as we discuss this right now? Yeah. And, and I want to point out that this this email this email was done, was sent to the Iron Dukes because they want the Iron Dukes to recognize the the crisis that Duke is in from a financial standpoint, and they're hoping the Iron Dukes, some of the you know well heeled people who support Duke athletics, will step up and and help them to survive what is definitely a, a potentially very difficult and very scary time from a financial standpoint for an athletic department. So those scenarios that you that you discuss, they they said we are currently in scenario number one. Scenario number one is that we play 11 football games, 10 conference games, plus one non-conference game, but we have no fans in the stands until at least January 1st. They said that's scenario number one. And in that scenario, we will fall about $3 million short of our expenses with our revenue. That They expect our expenses to be a little over $101 million a year. And that Duke's revenues in that situation would be about $98 million. So that's a $3 million shortfall. They said, by the way, there's also scenario number two, which is where football is postponed and we don't have any fans and, uh, you know, we don't play football until the spring. And in that scenario, 
we're still okay, probably. In that scenario, we've got about a $5 million shortfall that we have from revenues to expenses. But things get a lot more dire when you get to scenario number three, which is football getting canceled and no fans in the stands for basketball. In that scenario, no football, no fans for basketball. They expect revenues to fall short of expenses by $27 million. That tells you how important football is. That tells you how important having fans in the stands is. $27 million shortfall. That would be really tough for Duke. And there's even a scenario four. Folks, you don't want to hear scenario four. Scenario four is we can't play sports until 2021. If all sports are canceled for this year and we don't play until next fall, Duke would still have expenses of $84 million. And Duke's revenues would only be about $40 million. That's a $43 million shortfall. That's a disaster for our athletic department. And, and, and I think, you know, I don't think anyone, well, I should say, I hope that that's not what happens. I, I want there to be basketball. I want there to be other sports. I want there to be more football if we can do it in a safe way. And I think so far we see that Duke is doing that. But man, a $40 million, $43 million shortfall would really, really be tough for Duke. And then the other thing, the other little thing that really quickly I just wanted to mention, uh, they did outline some of the ways they are spending money to keep their students safe. 740 student athletes at Duke. And, and they say that the safety of them and their education is still the number one priority. And I believe that's true. They've revealed that they're going to spend around $5 million this year, $5 million on testing and protecting student athletes and coaches and staff. They, they, they revealed that they are doing testing five days a week for anyone in a contact sport. They revealed that they have not had a single athlete or anyone associated with athletics test positive in more than a month since August 11th. That they, that they have constructed extra two extra weight rooms and four extra medicine rooms so that they can keep players distant when players are going in to seek treatment or, or to work out and things like that. That they're doing extra housekeeping. They're using special electric static machines to, to clean everything. That they've got quarantine facilities at the Washington Duke in case anyone does get sick. So they're doing a ton of stuff to make all this happen and to make it all work. But obviously no one knows. You know, no one knows what this pandemic is going to bring next to us. But I thought those numbers were incredibly sobering. You guys know me. I'm the big number guy. The, the notion that if we, if we cancel football and we have no fans for basketball, which I think is a very real possibility, that, that would be a $27 million shortfall for Duke Athletics. That's a really scary thing to think about because I think that's, that's pretty darn likely at some point. And it, honestly, I think what I will commend Duke on is – by sending this, it's leading me to, to understand that what they've been doing over the last six months since this pandemic really shut everything down and the lengths that they have gone to keep everybody safe on campus in, their, in the athletic department with the money that they do have. And, you know, we've seen, you know, so many schools who are just like, we're just going to cut these sports. We're going to, you know, drastically reduce this. We're going to cut staff. We're going to cut jobs. And still they're coming up short it seems that Duke is, you know, finding ingenious ways to spend the money that they do have and make it so that the shortfall isn't as much as it could be uh, given that really, if you think about it, this football game was the first major sport that has been played by Duke in six months. So uh, I will commend that. And, And I think when it comes to just all of this, again, you know, everything could change tomorrow, but, 
you know, as we move forward, I think they, I feel like Duke is in, and this could be internal bias, but I feel like Duke is in a better position than most schools to react to what is happening and make it so that this is not a money issue, but it's an issue where they just, they can focus on the safety of the players uh, and the student athletes and not necessarily have to make any drastic decisions based on money. I think we'll leave it there for episode 231 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We'll be back maybe later in the week if we have some more news to share with you. But, of course, if you have topic suggestions and you know we have some time, we can fill things up. Hit us up on the email, dbrpodcast at gmail.com. Until then, thank you guys all for tuning in. Thanks to my friends Sam and Jason for joining me as always. And it is time for the Duke Band to take us home.